0: Chapter Two of Melmoth the Wonder. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. Melmoth the Wonder by Charles Robert Maturin. Chapter Two. You that wonder, scream, and groan round the mansions once your own row a few days after the funeral the will was opened before proper witnesses and john was found to be left sole heir to his uncle's property which though originally moderate had by his grasping habits and parsimonious life become very considerable as the attorney who read the will concluded he added there are some words here at the corner of the parchment which do not appear to be part of the will as they are neither in the form of a codicil nor is the signature of the testator affixed to them but to the best of my belief they are in the handwriting of the deceased as he spoke he showed the lines to melmoth who immediately recognized his uncle's hand that perpendicular and penurious hand that seems determined to make the most of the very paper thriftily abridging every word and leaving scarce an atom of margin and read, not without some emotion, the following words. I enjoin my nephew and heir, John Melmoth, to remove, destroy, or cause to be destroyed, the portrait inscribed J. Melmoth, 1646, hanging in my closet. I also enjoin him to search for a manuscript, which I think he will find in the third and lowest left-hand drawer of the mahogany chest standing under that portrait. It is among some papers of no value, such as manuscript sermons and pamphlets on the improvement of Ireland, and such stuff. He will distinguish it by its being tied round with a black tape, and the paper being very mouldy and discoloured. He may read it, if he will. I think he had better not. At all events, I adjure him, if there be any power in the adjuration of a dying man, to burn it. After reading this singular memorandum, the business of the meeting was again resumed, and as old Melmoth's will was very clear and legally worded, all was soon settled, the party dispersed, and John Melmoth was left alone. We should have mentioned that, his guardians, appointed by the will, for he was not yet of age, advised him to return to college and complete his education as soon as proper. But John urged the expediency of paying the respect due to his uncle's memory by remaining a decent time in the house after his decease. This was not his real motive. Curiosity, or something that perhaps deserves a better name, the wild and awful pursuit of an indefinite object, had taken strong hold of his mind. His guardians, who were men of respectability and property in the neighborhood, and in whose eyes John's consequence had risen rapidly since the reading of the will, pressed him to accept of a temporary residence in their respective houses till his return to Dublin. This was declined gratefully, but steadily. They called for their horses, shook hands with their heir, and rode off. Melmoth, was left alone the remainder of the day was passed in gloomy and anxious deliberation in traversing his late uncle's room approaching the door of the closet and then retreating from it in watching the clouds and listening to the wind as if the gloom of the one or the murmurs of the other relieved instead of increasing the weight that pressed on his mind finally towards the evening he summoned the old woman from whom he expected something like an explanation of the extraordinary circumstances he had witnessed since his arrival at his uncle's the old woman proud of the sermons readily attended but she had very little to tell her communication was nearly in the following words we spare the reader her endless circumlocutions her irish isms and the frequent interruptions arising from her applications to her snuff-box and to the glass of whiskey-punch with which Melmoth took care to have her supplied. The old woman deposed that his honor, as she always called the deceased, was always intent upon the little room inside his bedchamber, and reading there within the last two years, that people knowing his honor had money, and thinking it must be there, had broke into that room. In other words, there was a robbery attempted there but finding nothing but some papers they had retired that he was so frightened he had bricked up the window but she thought there was more in it than that for when his honour missed but a half penny he would make the house ring about it but that when the closet was bricked up he never said a word that afterwards his honour used to lock himself up in his own room and though he was never fond of reading was always found when his dinner was brought him hanging over a paper, which he hid the moment anyone came into the room. And once there was a great bustle about a picture that he tried to conceal, that knowing there was an odd story in the family, she did her best to come at it, and even went to Biddy Brannigan's, the medical Sybil before mentioned, to find out the rights of it. But Biddy only shook her head, filled her pipe, uttered some words she did not understand, and smoked on that it was but two evenings before his honour was struck i e took ill she was standing at the door of the court which had once been surrounded by stables pigeon-house and all the usual etceteras of a gentleman's residence but now presented only a ruinous range of dismantled out-offices thatched with thistles and tenanted by pigs when his honour called to her to lock the door his honor was always keen about locking the doors early. She was hastening to do so when he snatched the key from her, swearing at her, for he was always very keen about locking the doors, though the locks were so bad and the keys so rusty that it was always like the cry of the dead in the house when the keys were turned. That she stood aside for a minute, seeing he was angry, and gave him the key when she heard him utter a scream, and saw him fall across the doorway that she hurried to raise him, hoping it was a fit, that she found him stiff and stretched out, and called for help to lift him up, that when people came from the kitchen to assist, that she was so bewildered and terrified, she hardly knew what was done or said, but with all her terror remembered, that as they raised him up, the first sign of life he gave was lifting up his arm, and pointing it towards the court. And at that moment, SHE SAW THE FIGURE OF A TALL MAN CROSS THE COURT AND GO OUT OF THE COURT, SHE KNEW NOT WHERE OR HOW, FOR THE OUTER GATE WAS LOCKED AND HAD NOT BEEN OPEN FOR YEARS, AND THEY WERE ALL GATHERED ROUND HIS HONOR AT THE OTHER DOOR. SHE SAW THE FIGURE, SHE SAW THE SHADOW ON THE WALL, SHE SAW HIM WALK SLOWLY THROUGH THE COURT, AND IN HER TERROR CRIED, STOP HIM, BUT NOBODY MINDED HER, ALL BEING BUSY ABOUT HER MASTER and when he was brought to his room, nobody thought but of getting him to himself again, and further she could not tell. His honor, young Melmoth, knew as much as she. He had witnessed his last illness, had heard his last words. He saw him die. How could she know more than his honor? True, said Melmoth, I certainly saw him die, but you say there was an odd story in the family. Do you know anything about it not a word it was long before my time as old as i am certainly it must have been so but was my uncle ever superstitious fanciful and melmoth was compelled to use many synonymous expressions before he could make himself understood when he did the answer was plain and decisive no never never when his honor sat in the kitchen in winter to save a fire in his own room he could never bear the talk of the old women that came in to light their pipes betimes from time to time he used to shrew such impatience of their superstitious nonsense that they were fain to smoke them in silence without the consolatory accompaniment of one whisper about a child that the evil eye had looked on or another that though apparently a mewling peevish crippled brat all day went regularly out at night to dance with the good people on top of a neighbouring mountain, summoned thereto by the sound of a bagpipe, which was unfailingly heard at the cabin door every night. Melmoth's thoughts began to take somewhat of a darker hue at this account. If his uncle was not superstitious, might he not have been guilty? And might not his strange and sudden death, and even the terrible visitation that preceded it, have been owing to some wrong that his rapacity had done the widow and the fatherless? He questioned the old woman indirectly and cautiously on the subject. Her answer completely justified the deceased. He was a man, she said, of a hard hand and a hard heart, but he was as jealous of another's right as of his own. He would have starved all the world, but he would not have wronged it of a farthing. Melmoth's last resource was to send for Biddy Branigan, who was still in the house, and from whom he at least hoped to hear the odd story that the old woman confessed was in the family she came and on her introduction to melmoth it was curious to observe the mingled look of servility and command the result of the habits of her life which was alternately one of abject mendicity and of arrogant but clever imposture when she first appeared she stood at the door awed and curtseying in the presence and muttering sounds which possibly intended for blessings had from the harsh tone and witch-like look of the speaker every appearance of malediction but when interrogated on the subject of the story she rose at once into consequence her figure seemed frightfully delighted like that of virgil's electo who exchanges in a moment the appearance of a feeble old woman for that of a menacing fury she walked deliberately across the room seated or rather squatted herself on the hearthstone like a hare in her form spread her bony and withered hands towards the blaze and rocked for a considerable time in silence before she commenced her tale when she had finished it melmoth remained in astonishment at the state of mind to which the late singular circumstances had reduced him at finding himself listening with varying and increasing emotions of interest curiosity and terror to a tale so wild so improbable nay so actually incredible that he at least blushed for the folly he could not conquer the result of these impressions was a resolution to visit the closet and examine the manuscript that very night the resolution he found it impossible to execute immediately for on inquiring for lights the governante confessed the very last had been burnt at his honour's wake and a barefooted boy was charged to run for life and death to the neighbouring village for candles. "'And if you could, borrow a couple of candles,' added the housekeeper. "'Are there no candlesticks in the house?' said Melmoth. "'There are, honey, plenty. But it's no time to be opening the old chest, for the plated ones, in regard of their being at the bottom of it, and the brass ones that's in it, in the house, one of them has no socket and the other has no bottom.' And how did you make shift yourself, said Melmoth? I stuck it in a potato, quoth the housekeeper. So the gassoon ran for his life and death, and Melmoth, towards the close of the evening, was left alone to meditate. It was an evening apt for meditation, and Melmoth had his fill of it before the messenger returned. The weather was cold and gloomy. Heavy clouds betokened a long and dreary continuance of autumnal rain. Cloud after cloud came sweeping on like the dark banners of an approaching host, whose march is for desolation. As Melmoth leaned against the window, whose dismantled frame and pieced and shattered panes shook with every gust of wind, his eye encountered nothing but that most cheerless of all prospects, a miser's garden. Walls broken down, grass-grown walks whose grass was not even green dwarfish dottered, leafless trees and a luxuriant crop of nettles and weeds rearing their lovely heads where there had once been flowers all waving and bending in capricious and unsightly forms as the wind sighed over them it was the verdure of the churchyard the garden of death he turned for relief to the room but no relief was there the wainscoting dark with dirt and in many places cracked and starting from the walls, the rusty grate so long unconscious of a fire that nothing but a sullen smoke could be coaxed to issue from between its dingy bars, the crazy chairs, their torn bottoms of rush drooping inwards, and the great leathern seat displaying the stuffing round the worn edges, while the nails, though they kept their places, had failed to keep the covering they once fastened. The chimney-piece, which, tarnished more by time than by smoke, displayed for its garniture half a pair of snuffers a tattered almanac of seventeen fifty a timekeeper dumb for want of repair and a rusty fowling piece without a lock no wonder the spectacle of desolation drove melmoth back to his own thoughts restless and uncomfortable as they were he recapitulated the sibyl's story word by word with the air of a man who was cross-examining an evidence and trying to make him contradict himself the first of the Melmoths, she says, who settled in Ireland, was an officer in Cromwell's army, who obtained a grant of lands, the confiscated property of an Irish family attached to the royal cause. The elder brother of this man was one who had travelled abroad, and resided so long on the continent that his family had lost all recollection of him. Their memory was not stimulated by their affection, for there were strange reports concerning the traveller. He was said to be, like the damned magician Great Glendower, a gentleman profited in strange concealments. It must be remembered that at this period, and even to a later, the belief in astrology and witchcraft was very general, even so late as the reign of Charles the Second. Dryden calculated the nativity of his son Charles, the ridiculous books of Glanville were in general circulation, and Delrio and Werus were so popular that even a dramatic writer shadwell quoted copiously from them in the notes subjoined to his curious comedy of the lancashire witches it was said that during the lifetime of melmoth the traveller paid him a visit and though he must have been then considerably advanced in life to the astonishment of his family he did not betray the slightest trace of being a year older than when they last beheld him his visit was short he said nothing of the past or the future nor did his family question him it was said that they did not feel themselves perfectly at ease in his presence on his departure he left them his picture the same which melmoth saw in the closet bearing date sixteen forty six and they saw him no more some years after a person arrived from england directed to melmoth's house in pursuit of the traveller and exhibiting the most marvellous and unappeasable solicitude to obtain some intelligence of him the family could give him none and after some days of restless inquiry and agitation he departed leaving behind him either through negligence or intention a manuscript containing an extraordinary account of the circumstances under which he had met john melmoth the traveller as he was called the manuscript and the portrait were both preserved and of the original a report spread that he was still alive, and had been frequently seen in Ireland even to the present century, but that he was never known to appear but on the approaching death of one of the family, nor even then, unless when the evil passions or habits of the individual had cast a shade of gloomy and fearful interest over their dying hour. It was, therefore, judged no favourable augury for the spiritual destination of the last melmoth, that this extraordinary person had visited or been imagined to visit the house previous to his decease such was the account given by biddy brannigan to which she added her own solemnly attested belief that john melmoth the traveller was still without a hair on his head changed or a muscle in his frame contracted that she had seen those that had seen him and would confirm their evidence by oath if necessary that he was never heard to speak, seen to partake of food, or known to enter any dwelling but that of his family, and finally that she herself believed that his late appearance boded no good either to the living or the dead. John was still musing on these things when the lights were procured, and disregarding the pallid countenances and monitory whispers of the attendants, he resolutely entered the closet, shut the door, and proceeded to search for the manuscript. It was soon found, for the directions of old Melmoth were forcibly written and strongly remembered. The manuscript, old, tattered, and discolored, was taken from the very drawer in which it was mentioned to be laid. Melmoth's hands felt as cold as those of his dead uncle when he drew the blotted pages from their nook. He sat down to read. There was a dead silence through the house. Melmoth looked wistfully at the candles, snuffed them, and still thought they looked dim. Perchance he thought they burned blue, but such thought he kept to himself. Certain it is, he often changed his posture, and would have changed his chair had there been more than one in the apartment. He sunk for a few moments into a fit of gloomy abstraction, till the sound of the clock striking twelve made him start. It was the only sound he had heard for some hours and the sounds produced by inanimate things, while all living beings around are as dead, have at such an hour an effect indescribably awful. John looked at his manuscript with some reluctance, opened it, paused over the first lines, and, as the wind sighed round the desolate apartment and the rain pattered with a mournful sound against the dismantled window, wished. What did he wish for? He wished the sound of the wind less dismal, and the dash of the rain less monotonous he may be forgiven it was past midnight and there was not a human being awake but himself within ten miles when he began to read End of chapter two recording by james k white chula Vista.